If you'll turn to Philippians, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, the first five verses. As you do, let me remind you that uh, <clears throat> we're starting um, our series through the book of Acts in two Sundays, and in the foyer on the Welcome Center, there are scripture journals, uh, $4 a piece. Uh, these journals, we've done this before as we've gone through book series, uh, has the scripture on one side and blank space on the other. Take notes, observations, prayers, these type of things. So I want to encourage you towards that. Again, um, uh, on the Welcome Center, there'll be somebody there uh, to, to, to work with you on the scripture journal. All right, so Philippians 2, the first five verses. I'll go ahead and read and you follow along. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Unity, unity, something that is often desired and yet uh, seldom achieved, and when it is achieved, it is, it is fleeting. One of the primary reasons, if not the reason why that is so, is, is because people are involved. People who come from different backgrounds, who have varying temperaments and preferences and and goals. Unity was in some lack in the Philippian church. There, there may have been other reasons why Paul wrote to them and called for unity, but it was at least uh, what we see comes up in the beginning of chapter 4, that there was a serious conflict between two ladies in the church. They, they get called out by name, Iodia uh, and Sintiki. Um, people make unity difficult. But the church, the, the body of believers, are called to unity. What's more, the resources to make real long-lasting unity possible are available to God's people because of their joint union with Jesus. So here's, here's the point, here's the main takeaway from our passage this morning. The church is called to be unified through humility as this brings joy to Jesus. Let me get a little background here of this letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to this church, this church in Philippi, he actually planted this church as a young church plant. This is what's known as one of the prison letters. So he's in, he's in prison, maybe it was house arrest, but, but he's in prison. And they, the church in Philippi, sends a church member, maybe, maybe a leader of the church, but they send a church member, Epaphroditus, uh, to go visit Paul. They want to encourage him. They want to send him a gift. We read about these things later, also in chapter 4. And when he gets there, uh, he starts, Epaphroditus, starts sharing with Paul, some of the things that are going on in the congregation. And so that stirs up Paul's affection for this church and, and, and uh, pastoral desire to care for them. And so he writes this letter and sends it back with Epaphroditus. And so really when you kind of think about it, we've actually intercepted some, some ancient mail here. And uh, we get to hear what Paul was instructing to the church in Philippi. And so our particular passage here in chapter 2, the first five verses, falls within a section that started in chapter 1, verse 27, and it goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. And it is summarized by that very first verse in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this, this whole section here, 127 
through 2.18 could be summarized, live worthy of the gospel together. Living worthy of the gospel together. And as soon as Paul states this, live worthy of the gospel together, he immediately instructs them to what this looks like. It looks like unity in two different ways. That little section there at the end of chapter one, it is, it is a call for them to be unified together in light of experiencing oppression and, and uh, challenges coming from outside the church. And then in our passage, it once again looks like be unified, live worthy of the gospel. It looks like being in unity together in light of conflict coming from within the church. And so as we think about what it means to live worthy of the gospel together inside the church, a church like Grace Bible Church, Paul tells us it is to be unified through humility as this brings joy to Jesus. So I got, I got two points. See a little framework here for this passage in two points. We've got verses one through two. That's point one. That's the, that's the call to unity. And then the second point is verses three through five, unity through humility. So the, the main command of Paul here is seen in verse two. It is complete my joy. And the way that they're to do this is by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, by being unified. By being unified, they will, as Paul says, complete his joy. In other words, by, by being unified, they will complete his joy. But before Paul commands them, he, he motivates them towards obedience. Once again, we are saying that grace precedes obedience. Grace precedes obedience. Before he calls them to obey, to complete his joy, he motivates them towards obedience. Let's reread verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... So the word so, or maybe your translation has the word therefore, this, this word so or therefore is connecting our passage with the previous. And so the result of having experienced unity together in the face of, of opposition and persecution coming from outside the church was to motivate them to once again now pursue unity within the church in light of conflict that they are experiencing. In other words, Paul is saying, if you experience any comfort, I'm sorry, any encouragement in Christ together, any comfort from his love together as you were being persecuted and so on and so forth, then complete my joy by being unified, even though the conflict is coming from your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this conditional if clause at the beginning of verse 2, and it's, it's actually behind each one of these experiences that, that Paul is saying if there's any encouragement of Christ, if any comfort from love, and so on. And these, these experiences were to be readily affirmed by them. They were a community of believers united in Christ together. They had the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, and they were enjoying the, the love of the Father together. And effectively, Paul is saying, if you've experienced any of God's grace together, then, verse 2, let's reread it, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, there, there's the command, complete my joy. Paul took great joy in seeing Jesus' people be united. They weren't his people. They were Jesus' people. And so Paul's joy was really just an extension of Jesus' joy. In other words, to, to make Paul's joy complete by being unified was to bring joy to the Savior. All right, well, what does this unity look like? Paul gives us four terms 
four terms, and, and these can be seen under two categories, conviction and affection. Conviction and affection. Under conviction are the first and last terms, and then under affection are these two, these two middle terms. Let, let's consider convictional unity first. The, the terms are being of the same mind and being of one mind. Now, the, the ESV, which we use to preach from, kind of makes this hard to distinguish. Other translations bring a little bit more clarity here, and literally the Greek is being like-minded and intent on one purpose. So, so what is it that we're to be like-minded about? What, what is this one purpose that we are to be intent about? It is the truths of the gospel and the advance of the gospel. It's the truths of the gospel and the advance of the gospel, which is all over this, this letter. These were emphasis not only to the Philippian church, but these were also uh, normally evident, uh, uh, emphases for Paul when he was writing the church. The truths of the gospel and the advance of the gospel. So, the truths of the gospel. How do we go about obtaining and keeping aligned in the truths of the gospel? Well, we must know and agree upon the big story of the gospel. The big story of the gospel is found in the 66 books that make up the scriptures. And it's about the Trinitarian God, the holy creator of the universe, who created man in his own image. This, this big story says that man sinfully rebelled against God, and now because of their sin, their relationship with God is broken. It says that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, truly God, truly man, born of the Virgin Mary, came to earth and lived a sinless life who was crucified for sins, was buried, and on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. It says that by grace, through faith, and what Jesus accomplished, rebellious people's sins are forgiven. They are declared righteous and are reconciled to holy God, now free to live in ways pleasing to God. And finally, the big story of the gospel declares that one day Jesus will return in victory, establishing his forever kingdom. So our convictional unity must be aligned in these essential truths of the gospel. But listen, when we keep the, the gospel above all, there's actually a lot of freedom for disagreements about non-essentials or secondary, most certainly tertiary things. There's room for us to have disagreement on the specifics of Jesus' return. So long as we affirm the bodily and victorious return of Jesus Christ. There's room for us to disagree about whether the miraculous gifts have ceased or not, as long as we affirm that further revelation from God is prohibited. The canon, the 66 books, is closed. There's room for us to disagree on which specific view of creationism is right, as long as we affirm that the Trinitarian God created everything, and we deny godless Darwinian evolution. So we must have convictional unity in the truths of the gospel, and we must have convictional unity to be intent on one purpose, advancing the gospel. As a church, the advance of the gospel, making disciples, is what we were commissioned to do by the risen Lord Jesus. Every other purpose Every other purpose must be held with an open hand and come underneath that one main purpose. There are, there are many, there are many 
good and right causes that we are engaged with as individuals and that we may want to see the church be engaged with as, as a whole. But listen, when we're united in our one purpose, we'll be willing to lay aside what we may or may not want to do for the sake of our common unity and the purpose of advancing the gospel. Having our, our individual goals aside and focused on our one goal will keep us towards convictional unity. So we're called to a convictional unity and we're called to an affectional unity. The terms are having the same love and being of full accord. The, the love is agape love. Agape is not a love of preference or attraction. Agape is the love that we see in God sending his son Jesus to die not for friends, but for his enemies. Who did not deserve his love, but deserved his wrath. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, and this is agape, not that we have agaped God, but that he agaped us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. I mean, one of the closest points of relationship that we might see for this, this self-giving, self-sacrificing agape love is, is maybe between that of a parent and, and a child. And parents often love and sacrifice with little expectation of return, and yet even, even that love is flawed because it is, it is coming through flawed beings. Agape love is the spirit-empowered, the spirit-empowered, supernatural character of God on display in the Christian community. Having the same love is to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor, to serve one another, to desire to live in harmony with one another, and the, and the list goes on. Paul is calling us to an affectional unity where sacrificial love exists amongst us. But that's not all. It's also an affectional unity where we're in full accord with one another. Other translations put this as being united in spirit. One commentary puts well what Paul is communicating. It's as if Paul is saying, it is not enough to agree with each other theologically. God actually calls you to care for each other deeply in a love that binds your souls together so strongly that differences of perspective cannot pull you apart. Look, we're not going to agree on every detail. Paul's also not saying that we all need to be best friends, but he is commending that. Listen, he is commending that brothers and sisters, between brothers and sisters in Christ who are united together in Christ, that there should be and can be a unity that's not just convictional, but is also affectional, where our hearts are bound together with sacrificial love for one another. Listen, the unity that Paul is calling for here is very different than, than what the world calls unity. Worldly unity is about sameness. Biblical unity is about oneness. 
But there's going to be differences among us. But we must be one in our convictional unity with one another, and we must be one with our affectional unity towards one another. I just want to give a moment of, of encouragement. I've been here for a long time, and I, I've grown to continue to just increase my love for this church. You, the people of Grace Bible Church. And there is much to commend here about our convictional and our affectional unity for one another. So I just want to encourage you, but I want to say let's press on to greater depths of convictional unity and affectional unity for one another. All right, so we've seen the command to be unified that's born out of their shared experience of God's grace, and we've seen what that unity looks like. Now Paul, now Paul is going to show us that unity is through humility. Unity is through humility. The spirit of our culture, the spirit of our remaining sin is self-seeking and arrogance. It's looking out for number one, is it not? In the age of social media and taking selfies, humility is rare. It was rare in Paul's day and it is rare in our day. Self-seeking and pride are for Paul at the crux for why real unity is so elusive and impossible to keep. People make unity difficult. And so Paul wisely tells us that real, sustaining unity is obtained through humility. Let's reread verses three through four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So two observations about these verses. One, verse four develops verse three. Verse four develops verse three. In other words, how does one consider others as more important than themselves? By also looking out for the interest of others. And then the second observation is that both of these verses provide a contrasting, don't do this, but do this. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to look at the, uh, the negative. We're going to look at the, uh, what we shouldn't do first. That means we're going to look at the, the front half of both verses, and then we'll look at what Paul is saying that we should do in, in, in contrast. So Paul tells us that if we're going to experience unity, we must not do anything from motives out of or out of a heart of selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, do not merely look out for your own interests. Selfish ambition is where self-interest and self-seeking is positioned above and at the expense of others. Selfish ambition sees others who are created in the image of God as mere obstacles in the way to obtain personal glory. This is why Paul calls us to also do nothing from a heart of conceit or empty pride, literally vain glory. Vain glory, <laughs> vain glory is, is not the glory that others give to you. It is, it is that which you give to yourself. It's self-glorification. It's the, it's the stench of thinking too highly of ourselves. 
What's more, in our selfishness and pride, we not only put ourselves over and against others, we put ourselves over and against God himself. Pride exalts self above the good of others and above God and his glory. You see, in our selfishness and our pride, we, we, we put ourselves at, at the center of our, of our warped little universe and require everyone else to include God to orbit around us and our wants and our desires and our interests. But Paul has no misconceptions that we will look to our own Interest. What Paul is saying is that we should not make our interests, our preferences, our wants, and our desires the one and only that goes above all others. John Stott says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And, and, and so Paul contrasts now. He, he contrasts, don't do selfishness and pride with, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves and, and also look to the interest of others. The, the discipline, yes, the discipline of considering others as more important than yourself and looking to the interest of others flows out of humility. C.S. Lewis has pointed out that Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Lewis says that as you maybe consider a conversation with a humble person, probably all that you will think about them is that they seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to them. The truly humble person is not going to be having a conversation with you and and thinking about whether they are or are not being humble. They're going to be thinking about you and your interests and your wants and your desires because the the truly humble person is others-focused. What's more, when it comes down to choosing whose whose interests are are valued higher, the humble person will, will no doubt consider your interests, your interests as more significant than their own. When we read about humility in these verses, you may have other things that come to mind, maybe sacrificial love, like we mentioned earlier, maybe patience and kindness, gentleness, and I don't think that you'd be wrong if those type of things came to your mind, they certainly came to my mind. Hey, maybe even specifically, you're thinking of a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 5, that says, uh, Paul wrote, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude, it's, it's humble. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. You, you see, we cannot merely think about others as more important than ourselves. We, we cannot merely look to the interest of others without also demonstrating that mindset in tangible ways. Humility never remains internal. It necessarily demonstrates itself. So here's the connection with things like love and kindness with humility. Humility, as Jerry Bridges says, opens the way to all other godly character traits. It is the soil in which the other traits of the fruit of the Spirit grow. It's actually remarkable. You see, humility was a virtue that had negative connotations in the, in the, uh, uh, the, the Roman Greco society that the Philippians lived in. 
Humility carried with it the notion of slave. But in the Christian community, humility was rightly seen as the soil of all other virtues. Let me just ask some questions here for reflection. Use this as a, a mirror to kind of, so we can see ourselves. Am I competing for people's attention and approval? Do I find it difficult or easy to rejoice in the success of others? Am I concerned with the needs of others? When is the last time I took a loss for someone else's gain? In my conversations with others, do I really listen to them? I think as we hold the mirror in front of us and as we look at ourselves and, and as we think about what Paul has said here, that, that unity is through humility, I think we gotta, we gotta end up with this question. If unity is through humility, and as I think about myself, <laughs> how's this possible? I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, but there are definitely some times where uh, I, I love me some me. But look, the, the reality is we are all struggling with remaining sin that is geared towards me, myself, and I. Unity through humility. How is this possible? Well, up to us, it's not. But good news, God through Paul doesn't command us to do something without also pointing us to his enabling grace for obedience. Let's look at verse five. Verse five says, have this mind, this humble mind, this command, have this humble mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, the humility that we need in order to be unified is both seen in and found in Jesus Christ, the humble one. Jesus is both the perfect example of humility and the only source for true humility. Paul continues on in verse 6 about the ways in which Jesus displayed humility in, by counting God the Father and us as more significant than himself. Jesus looked to the interest of God the Father receiving glory and our interest of receiving salvation. But we, don't, we don't have time to go into every detail, but, but, but listen. Listen to this. Listen to the way Paul speaks about Jesus. Starting in verse six. Who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus does serve as our example to follow, but, but what Jesus accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection is far more than just an example to follow. Because of our union with Jesus, 
The humble one were empowered towards humility. A humility that's willing to lay aside self for the glory of God and the good of others. Listen, to be humble is to share the very heart of Jesus who describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. But friends, if we're going to do this, we need Jesus' help. We need Jesus' help. We cannot do this humility on our own. I mean, here's the thing. If we pursue humility apart from Jesus' help, and then we have some sort of, oh, perceived measure of success, all we're going to end up with is pride. You can't do it on your own, and if you think you can, you've already messed it up. And on the other side of the coin, if we pursue humility apart from Jesus' help, and when we fail, we're going to experience hopelessness because humility is impossible apart from Jesus' help. Jesus wants to help us. Jesus wants to help his people look more like him. He is so eager to help us. Let me me give you just two of the chief ways that you can practically lean into Jesus' help. One, confess. Confess your inability. Jesus, I can't do this apart from your, your help. I will only and ever love myself. Help me to exude a heart of humility. We need to confess. And two, and I'm starting to do it there, we need to pray. Pray for his help to do this. We need to confess our inability, and we need to pray and ask for his help. Help me, Lord Jesus. Help me to be humble, to honor you, and to do for the good of others. Brothers and sisters, the the church, we, we are called to be unified through humility as this brings joy to Jesus. Friends, we'll we'll never experience the kind of unity that, that Paul is talking about here, a convictional and affectional unity apart from living in humility towards one another. I can't do it on our own, but Jesus wants to help us through our our union with him, the humble one. Our, our, Our imperfect unity, our imperfect unity is but a dim reflection of the unity that our Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit perfectly enjoys through perfect humility. We get to see just just one snapshot of that here in Philippians 2. Brothers and sisters, I want us to leave here understanding clearly what God is calling us to do to complete his joy by being united, but I want us to leave here knowing that there is a lot of grace here for the obedience. Don't leave here with just the command. Don't leave here with just the calling to be unified. Leave here also knowing that there is grace to obey. Our great God and Savior wants to help us to do these things together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness in preserving a passage like this so that, Father, your people know ways that we can bring you joy. We want to bring you joy. So, Father, we're, we're, we're thankful that you've told us that you are calling us towards unity. And we are just as thankful that you are 
desirous to give us grace to pursue unity together. I pray, Lord, that, that unity would continue to be a mark of this church through humility. Help us, Father, to have a, a convictional unity together and an affectional unity towards one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.